You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. So when I ran out of my office, as soon as I came out the office, on my office doors, my worst nightmare became a reality because I encountered the gunman. may think you know all about the Columbine tragedy, the Jonestown massacre, the Lake Placid Olympics of 1980, the appearance of Queen at Live Aid, and the capture of Pablo Escobar. But I think you're about to learn something else about these news events and more. I have a great guest, Joshua Cohen from eyewitness history podcast where he talks to real people involved in various aspects of history i um in various news stories i recommend that you get the full interviews of some of the excerpts that we're going to play on this podcast but we are going to talk to a survivor of columbine a survivor of the jonestown massacre of 1978 and in a happier note the Podfather, Adam Curry, who sort of invented podcasting, and some other stories. Um, you can get his podcast, Eyewitness History Podcast, wherever you find podcasts. I highly recommend it. It's very complimentary to a program like what I do. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. I'm here with Josh Cohen, who is the host of Eyewitness History Podcast on the Parthenon Network. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the program. Oh, that's my pleasure, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to, to speak with you and uh, have our listeners hear our conversation. I've been listening to your program, obviously, as a history buff myself. I mean, you can't do any better than getting the uh, the real participants in history or people who have some knowledge of those real participants in history. Wanted to have you on and talk about it. Maybe uh, you explain in your words what your podcast all about. Yeah, absolutely, Bruce. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So yeah, what eyewitness history is, first and foremost, which you you almost gleaned at there a little bit, is I would say the showcasing of stories, right? So I, I think the eternal quandary with with history is that it's often transmitted or taught in, mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. as a boring collection of names and facts and dates, right? They feel rather cold almost, right? So I, I think the best way, really the only way, if I'm being honest, to bring history out of that realm is in the realm of storytelling. That's my ambition with eyewitness history. And so as the name would suggest, I interview people uh, that were eyewitnesses to historical events. So this can be anywhere from I, I interviewed one soldier who sadly passed away just last week, as a matter of fact, Vince wow. Brenza, who fought in the Battle of the Bulge. That was incredible. On up to 9-11 survivors, e even comedy writers. I've interviewed writers for Saturday Night Live and and uh, musicians. Uh, I interviewed the keyboardist for Queen. I interviewed Wheatus, who did the song Teenage Dirtbag, which uh -huh. might be <laughs> might be known to some of our listeners. 
But the way I separate out the, the types of history, um, I, I have them take two forms. The first is serious history. So this is the, as I mentioned, the 9-11 survivor, the World War II veteran, the apartheid double agent. Um, and then the other, I would term the pop culture history. So this is, as I mentioned, like my interview with Hugh Fink, who was a writer, is a writer for Saturday Night Live, who wrote Chris Farley's last comedy sketch. Uh. Yeah, Spike Edney, keyboards for Queen, who was on stage at Wembley during Live Aid. And indeed, uh, my interview with the the creator of our fine medium of podcasting, Adam Curry. So Amazing. that's uh yeah. So that's that's eyewitness history in summary. So much there to unpack. I mean, I always remember the the former mayor of my town. He was an older fellow. He actually got elected when he was eighty one. Believe it or not, which tells you a lot about like when people talk about age and politics today. You know? Yes. He uh, he would end up getting reelected uh, three years later. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge as well, and I just will never forget. I said, "Oh, you were in the Battle of the Bulge," and he was said, "Yeah, that's what they called it later. It's a rough day." <laughs> and you, yeah, you realize this is how people are experiencing it. So I think it's great. I also think you know the pop culture stuff. Look, it matters because that's the life we're living. We can't just be in the in the books all day. I know you right. had the interview with the guys who wrote that savage garden song which is ubiquitous yes. on the radio but of course now i can't remember the name of it but you know charles fisher uh and the the song was truly madly deeply yeah it's that i'll be <laughs> your love i don't want to sing too much i get copyright <laughs> police i'll get kicked <laughs> off but um get dinged particularly compelling are the interviews where we're, we're talking about a serious subject and you have those one of them that really um moved me listening to the podcast was the story of um uh, Frank DeAngelis, the principal of Columbine High School. Authorities in Littleton, Colorado, were securing the scene of a deadly school shooting so they could make a final body count as the community and the nation struggles to come to grips with the carnage. The original mass cultural event school shooting, I mean, there were some other firearms. The well-known, you know, you go back to 1979 and there was a school shooting that um, that occurred that but there's such a gap between the the pacing of them and since Columbine, there's been so many. You talked yeah. to Frank DeAngelis about his story. And that was just a moving episode for me. And that's when I had contacted you. What was it? I mean, tell me a bit about it. Well, it's kind of you to say all that, Bruce. And it's one of my uh, one of my favorite interviews as well. I, I think um, if I can drop the modesty for a second, I think it's truly one of the best interviews I've ever done. Um, not not really because of me but just because he was so great and had such a great memory and 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 recall um what it was like interviewing him well i i prepped like a madman for the interview because you know as you point out obviously the the 1999 shooting it was uh uh weighty to say the least so i mm -hmm. felt like i i owed the subject matter you know as much of my attention and research as as possible um he was very friendly uh and had as i say uh great recall for the events um he did make a separation between you know how school shootings were handled back then versus how they're handled now hmm. back then it was the worst thing ever and of course they're still horrible now tragic that's of course self-evident but uh, unfortunately that they have they they occur with an alarming um uh frequency right back then as you point out you know that the previous school shooting was something like 30 40 years prior um so I interviewed him and I, one of my first questions, I just asked him to take me back to that day, uh, which was, I believe, April 20th, 1999. The date is, is important to some, some people that research Columbine. 
because it was uh, Hitler's birthday. This is a whole thing. What I love about it is, and and I won't take too much on this point, but no. what I what I love about it is that he he breaks so many myths about it. Um, one is that these guys were just some guys being picked on by bullies, which was such a eighties nineties construct that just bled into right. the news coverage. And you know the guy chose Hitler's birthday. Um, you have a lot right there. Absolutely, absolutely, and and the other the other myth that he breaks while we're on the topic of myths is uh, one of the things that was put out there was it was the the jocks that they were targeting. That was one of the big tropes that was yeah, put out yeah. there. And and Frank makes the extremely reasonable <laughs> case to me. He goes, "Well, it, Josh, you know the um the the shooters did most of the killing, most of their shootings in the library." So mm-hmm. it would seem to me if they were targeting jocks, they'd be going to the gym, they'd be going to the weight room, they'd be going to the football field, you know. So they didn't know the jocks. I mean, they um they weren't uh, necessarily out because I mean one of them might might be, but the I I remember him saying the one fellow like I mean psychopathic, but a charmer yes. and yep. would go over to the principal even and you know, pat him on the back, you know, hey, how you doing, Mr. D and things like something like that. And the exact opposite of what every news account at the time you heard. That, that's exactly right. And just to give our listeners maybe some context to what you're referring to. So the shooting itself occurred, I think it was on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're referring to is the weekend prior. It was actually prom. And mm-hmm. uh, the shooters, whose names I'd prefer not to say. Um, I agree. Came up to Frank during prom. And as you point out, said, hi, Mr. D, this is my girlfriend. And, you know, they high fived him, you know, and this was, of course, something they were planning for months. So they knew during that prom that they were going to probably take a gun to Frank the following week. It was incredible. Given that, think about that when you think about this principal entering the school on that day after that happened. Yeah. Yep. So I I interviewed Frank and I asked him, uh, what happened that day? And he tells me he's just getting back to the school, having attended a, a a meeting for the students of the future business leaders of America. He had to present award an award and so forth. Um, they start hearing um, uh, gunshots, and then this is where he uh, takes it from there. So when I ran out of my office, Kiki went down one way, I went the other, and as soon as I came out the office. On my office doors, my worst nightmare became a reality because I encountered the gunman. And um, I remember it so vividly, and everything just seemed to slow down. And later, what I learned was you go through something called fight, flight, and freeze. And I went through, and I thought I walked out very calmly, but I remember very distinctly what the gunman was wearing. Baseball cap turned backwards, um, white cutoff T-shirt, black vest, boots. And I just remember the shots being fired and glass breaking behind me. And all I kept thinking about, and it just slowed down, all I kept thinking about, what it was going to feel like to have a bullet pierce my body. Because I had never in my life encountered anything like that. And so I thought I walked very calmly, but I actually sprinted towards a gunman. And I know when my secretary, Susan White, and Kiki Leva saw me later outside, they were shocked because the last they saw me, I was sprinting right towards a gunman. And I've had police officers say, Frank, why? You're unarmed. Why did you uh, sprint towards one gunman? And one reason, one reason only, my girls, I had some kids that were in trouble. And there were about 25 girls that were coming out of the locker room to go to a physical education class, and they were unaware of what was happening And I hurriedly got them there, and I knew in my mind 
that if I got him into the gym and we'd be able to shut the door, and then once I was able to check outside to see if it was safe, because there was a report of snipers outside, snipers on the building. I said, once I got him outside, we'd be in a safe place. Well, everything was going as planned. I'm keeping him calm. And then all of a sudden, I pull on the gym door and it's locked and we're in trouble. And the girls are screaming, the girls start praying, and literally the gunman is turning the corner. We hear the sounds of the shots getting closer, the boots on the ground. And I had about 35 keys on a key ring. And I I was a principal that I wore a suit every day or a sport coat every day. I reached in my pocket, and the first key I pulled out, I stuck in the door and it opened it on the first try. And it wasn't that this key was specially marked. And now when I go out and do presentations with people, I said, if you need to get to that key, if you need to get to that button, you need to be able to do it quickly. This key was not specially marked. It was just mingled in with all the others. And I was so fortunate to be able to do that on the first try, because if I didn't, more than likely, I wouldn't be conducting this interview and those girls would have died. And it was uh, several years ago. Uh, Columbine girls softball team was playing in the state championship. And so I, I'm at the game and all of a sudden a young lady comes up to me and I recognize her. She was one of the girls with me on April 20th and she's crying. I'm crying pretty emotional and she spins me around. She said, Mr. D, do you see that girl there in right field? I said, yeah. She said, thank you for finding that key because that's my daughter. And if you didn't find that key, she wouldn't be playing in this game and it got very emotional and so it was from there, I immediately went outside, and the thing that's so disturbing, and it's there's no one to blame, but it was a protocol at the time to secure the perimeter. Right. You know, and we had a school resource officer that was at ex, uh, exchanging gunfire, and he was being told that you can't go in until the SWAT team arrived, and that was one of the most frustrating things in talking to the three or 400 people that were trapped in the building, they were being told help is on the way. And all of a sudden, all these officers are arriving, paramedics are arriving, but no one's coming in the building. And I got outside and I was actually helping the police officers draw floor plans. Uh, at one point, they were going to put a body armor on me to go in the building, shut off the fire alarm because it was so loud that the police could not, the SWAT team could not communicate once they did arrive. And so by the time the SWAT team got there, it was about 58 minutes after the original shots were fired. And and it's not the police's fault. I had defended them to the very max because that was a protocol. And I even was on the street with many of the officers who were friends of mine. And they said, you know, this is crazy. We've been sworn to protect and serve and we're standing outside. But that was a protocol at the time. Now you look at the protocol First officers are immediately going in, and most of these events are over within three to five minutes. So that's what happened on that particular day. Yeah, for you know, first of all, um, that term hero gets bandied about. I remember at work or some kind of award for like our sales heroes or something. Oh. It's like, don't use the term, you know, save it. Uh, it's a sacred term that reserved for people like Frank. And there's a lot of stories, and I'm sure you capture a bunch, and you will continue to. First of all, emotions. What's a you know? You're a podcaster. I've done some interviews. I, I they're more abstract. They're more with professors. What's it like? How do you how do you handle that and and keep going with the podcast and everything like that? That's a great question. Um, 
I guess what I certainly tried to do there was certainly empathize, which wasn't mm-hmm. difficult. It's a mm-hmm. horrifying story. Um, <laughs> but then also ultimately realize I have a responsibility to him and to her, them, mm-hmm. uh, to keep it together so that mm-hmm. we can continue on with the interview so that his or her or theirs stories are heard. Yep. Right. So. And you can appreciate this, Grant, as you say, you've done more abstract interviews, but you know, it's stoicism is what's called for, I think, when, uh, when you're dealing with that. And I, you know, um, I don't have this particular clip, but I also, as you know, interviewed a Holocaust survivor, uh, who told me, you know, he was 16 years old in Auschwitz, uh, not knowing where his father was and being told by one of the prisoners that he went up the chimney, meaning that he had been gassed and his body was burned. In those moments, all I can do is is empathize, have my heart break for them, but ultimately continue on with the with the next question to make sure that their story is brought to bear. Yeah, we got an audience. We got to get their story out, and whether it's a historical figure in the abstract or uh, or someone right in front of you. Yeah, and then other things. Um, he talked about the protocol. So he, this is these are the things that I don't believe everyone knows about Columbine, and I haven't done a side by side analysis, but. But I'm not even sure that Michael Moore got all of these points right. Um, he might have mentioned about the protocol. I'm not sure. Yeah, I agree. I don't. I don't think he did. Uh, and the protocol was something that wasn't even known to me, you know, prior to interviewing. Because yep. at the time, back in 1999, this was a brand new foreign sort of thing. So the, 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 yeah. there's no there's no reason to expect that there would be a protocol in place if you think about it. Now, of course, as he told me toward the end, you, you know, these things are snuffed out within the first couple minutes because as horrifying as it is to say, it happens so often we do have protocols. And, and you know, a lot of people say, oh, I wish we had an armed uh, guard or something. There was an SRO on the scene in Columbine. I mean, it is a bigger high school, but there was one there. So and the SWAT yep. team arrived quickly and all of these things. So uh, still, like, there's a lot there in that interview. I encourage you. The other part of the interview that encourage listeners to go to Josh's Eyewitness History podcast and check out is that he talks about how he really believes Columbine's role in as a copycat and motivator for these school shootings, and that indeed the the two suspects had things that they were copycatting have been copycats and are part of the reason why there's school shooting. Not the only reason, not everyone, but I think he gave, he gives a percentage and check out the interview to, to find out more about that. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that, Bruce. Yeah. We, we go into all that in a, in a good amount of detail and, and you're, and you're right. He does give examples of some of the salient school shootings of, of recent um, uh, Virginia tech, for instance, um, where the shooter Cho Song, we specifically calls out the, the names of of the Columbine shooters, um, I believe he called them martyrs. And yeah, not to go too long on a side point, but I totally agree with you. Um, I believe that due to this copycat factor, not just in school shootings, but in all kinds of shootings, I don't like it's only recently the media is just starting to not focus on the crime perps and to focus on the crime victims. And uh, yes. and they have no idea what that their role in it, which is certainly present. They are playing a role when they advertise this person's name in this program. I don't even like to spend a lot of time on the assassin of James Garfield or the assessment assassin of McKinley. We have to talk about it. But, you know, it's gotten to the point and nothing gets me angrier that you got the photo of Garfield. You look him up and there's the assassin there, this crazy man who is not an office seeker. I mean, n- nothing enrages me more. And it's 
not about a crime of the 19th century. It's a crime of 21st century history that's still being perpetrated, that's still present in the way we, instead of acknowledging like James Garfield is a good president. So I could go on a lot of things about that. That's a whole other podcast, right? That's <laughs> yeah, a whole other podcast. You've got some great uh, other interviews. One of them that you you talk about is the founder of podcasters, the so-called podfather, uh, Adam Curry. And I do remember, I've started this program in 2006. I do remember him being uh, an influence yeah, thank you. Yeah, that that was a real pleasure. Um, he's more or less credited, as you point out, as the the podfather, the inventor of podcasting. Of course, the the full story is never quite that simple, right? He did some work with uh, Dave Weiner, who who's the inventor of the blog, and piggybacked off some of the work that that he had done. And of course, he was at an interesting point at the intersection of of you know uh, technology and then also um, this this new medium coming up of people finding more of a presence online, not just companies. It feel, felt like a less foreign thing, right? And then a couple of years later, through a number of, yeah, really interesting circumstances, came up with the concept for podcasting and worked with Dave Weiner. And before it was even had a name, we didn't come up with a name. And it just took off and it worked. And then that was also because of the iPod, the technology we had already created in 2000, the whole idea. But then when the iPod came around, it, was, it all kind of clicked. And you know, it was very, it was very, uh, it was a hot commodity early on. Uh, a lot of public broadcasters liked it, like NPR and the BBC. And so they did a lot of stories about it. And it did quite well until I'd say around 2008. And that's when YouTube was purchased for a billion dollars and um, Twitter came on the scene and Facebook, you, know, you could get on Facebook without a school email address and podcasting got snowed under. It just, <laughs> like it was. It was from page one to page 13 below the fold, maybe a little story, but it grew very, very slowly, quietly because it's completely decentralized. Not one company owns it. Mm -hmm. And it just kept on growing with really small hosting companies, a couple of big apps, and notably Apple, um, the Apple podcast app, which has really launched to really launched podcasting into mainstream until 2000. I want to say 16. I want to say when Serial came along at the height of. Yet another innovation, which was streaming. Oh, we have Fulu, we have Netflix. It's, we're binging. We're binging our ass off. <laughs> we're watching all five seasons of Breaking Bad. Our eyes are like this Monday morning at school or at the workplace. And here along came this really compelling story without any pictures, just a story. True crime is um, certainly in the United States. We're obsessed with it. We love true crime drama. You know, it's it's such a great category, particularly when done the way Serial did it. And that was very specific. You cannot binge it. You have to wait until next week to find out what happens. So yeah, you could catch up and binge up until the point where everyone else was. So it became water cooler talk. It became, you know, something that people really enjoyed. And they they kind of loved having this waiting moment and guessing and, and you know, uh, talking about it. And that was just such a beautiful thing. And, and that relaunched podcasting in general brought back under uh, everybody's eye. And at the same time, you know, other companies thought they foolishly thought they could monetize on it. We can get into that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you got big name contracts and companies getting bought out. And, you know, so, so podcasting just expanded, expanded, expanded. Everyone has a podcast. And, you know, you have to have a podcast. It's not even dorky to have a podcast anymore. Now, of course, <laughs> pendulum is swung. If you're a podcast, you're probably also a day trader and you're probably scum. Um, <laughs> so the, and so there's a lot of this happened along the way. And in fact, just to solidify that it remains the, uh, the independent, 
decentralized, widely distributed mechanism that it is. Three years ago, I started uh, podcastindex.org to make sure that no one can be deplatformed. We put some, well, we, we put some mechanisms in there so you can actually be financed without being, you know, financially deplatformed. So if you want people to support your show. So we built that and we now have over 70 apps and services using uh, the index. It's completely free for anyone to use. Yeah. I mean, originally, you know, I experienced some of that world. I mean, it was a blog with sound files, you know, it really wasn't much to it. And then there's a whole side story of that's the, not really related to the interview, but this whole side story that someone needs to tell. Maybe I'll do an episode on it of of the patent troll that really yes. held up um, podcasting. Not podcasting because we were podcasting without interruption from 2006, and that wasn't the beginning. Of course, that was that was almost that was the be- the the middle of the beginning through to the serial times. We were podcasting just fine, thank you very much. Nobody, no patent troll stopped us, but people <laughs> trying to make money off podcasting we're getting a lot of court trouble from this patent troll who um no thanks man i appreciate you saying that yeah we 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 delved into that um uh obviously birthing the podcast and we also took some time um maybe somewhat frivolously but i think still interestingly on some of the the big interviews that he did when he was with mtv um mm-hmm. so uh ashley with your permission i have another clip that i brought in this one there was the MTV Video Vanguard Award that, long story short, was going to be renamed the Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Award. And there was a presentation ceremony as such where Adam was going to present uh, this award to Michael um, and uh, Tom Freston, who I think was the president of MTV at the time. Don't quote me on that, but I think so, was there as well. Um, and actually, with your permission, I'd love to play that clip sure, for you. Sure, go ahead. All right. The first one, uh, I suspect you'll even know which one I'm going to refer to, was when you interviewed, not interviewed, but um, you introduced actually Tom Freston. Uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson, yeah. There, I knew you were going to say <laughs> who, Yeah, and, and uh, he awarded Michael Jackson the Vanguard Award. Um, I know there's an interesting backstory to why he was awarded the award, but I'd love, yeah. To, yeah, I'd love to ask you if you can recall that experience, what that experience was like. And then also, I know there's a interesting thing that I've seen you pull in regarding dishonesty in, the, in that medium. Yes. Do <laughs> you want to string all that together for me? Yeah, yeah you've, uh, you've, uh, you've done your homework well. Oh, yeah, so Michael Jackson, uh, a deal, the television is all about deals. And so Michael Jackson had a deal with MTV. He would perform on the Video Music Awards, which is a big deal for MTV. It was our, you know, our big annual 4.0 rating show. That was huge. You, know, you get a lot of people watch. Five million people watch. That was crazy for MTV. But in return, and I'm not sure if if he asked or we offered, but he was going to have an award named after him, which would be the Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Video Video Vanguard Award of the Year, which I think now has just become the Video Vanguard Award of the Year. It's like he's dead. It's like, eh, we can drop the Michael Jackson part. But it was supposed to be the Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Award of the Year. And <laughs> for whatever reason, Michael decided as part of the deal, Adam has to give it to me. Uh, but Adam's wife at the time was very pregnant, and and you know she was Dutch and didn't have anyone. We didn't really have infrastructure. If you're gonna have a baby, and I'm gonna be in Los Angeles, we lived in New Jersey uh, at the time. It's like and that's gonna be a problem. So like, no, send downtown Julie Brown or somebody else. I I I gotta stay with uh you know with my highly pregnant wife. Uh, no, this no no we you got we need you and and you gotta be in L.A. in two days. You it has to be you, otherwise this deal falls apart. So what they wound up doing 
is they flew my uh, mother-in-law in on Concord. <laughs> I tell you, she took the supersonic plane when it still existed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And so she flew in and she stayed with my... Now, by the way, our daughter wasn't born until later. And as she was, you know... Had to have C-section, so it never would have. It would have. It would have been horrible if I wasn't there. But luckily, nothing happened. So I go to L.A. and go to MJJ Studios, and it was really interesting. So we walk in, and right away, Howie Mandel was there, and he's doing Bob. If you remember Bobby's World, he's doing Bobby's World voices for like maybe twenty kids who are in some kind of you know like school situation there, which Michael Jackson funded. I think these were underprivileged kids. And so we get ready, and Tom Freston's there, and because um, of course Freston needed to be in the mix somehow. I'm, I'm not sure why he got. <laughs> maybe maybe Michael wanted him there too for legitimacy of the how how big this award was. Yeah, and we were we're ready to go, and there was already someone who was you know uh, what's the uh, windexing Michael's pants, you know, to make them nice and shiny. It was kind of weird, like you know, he had these pants on that had to be windexed, and we're getting ready to go. And Michael's not a small guy. I'm six four. He's well, I had my hair, so I was probably seven feet with the hair. And uh, and and, yeah. and Michael, and Mike, I'm ready to go. And he says, oh, no, hold on a second. And then he calls Bob over. Bob was a guy, kind of do-anything guy. He whispers in his ear, and Bob comes back with the apple crate so Michael could stand on it and be almost, you know, at the same height as I was. It was very bizarre. It's like, okay, you want you want to be like that? That's fine. Um, and then we, uh, and yeah, and then I gave him the award, and, he was very gracious and really nice, and uh, and he did the awards. He did the MTV awards, and we did name the award after him until I think uh, J Lo got it, and I didn't hear the Michael Jackson words anymore. So <laughs> it dropped away. Shall we go next? Uh, boxing is that work? Absolutely. That's that's the one I have queued up. As a matter of fact, you have a uh, personal interest in boxing. I think I from do. A very interview I got. Yeah. Yeah, very personal interview. So I, I boxed for a very long time, uh, about 20 years of my life, um, and uh, was state champion uh, here in Minnesota. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I have a, a personal interest in boxing that I, I don't have for a lot of other subjects. And what I've had pointed out to me 
is that when I'm talking with a boxing figure, whether it's uh, Jim Lampley, who we're about to discuss, or Barry Tompkins, his predecessor, or a world champion like Bronco McCart, former world champion, it's been said to me as a compliment that I get slightly less professional. <laughs> and what and what what they mean by that was that uh, was that I tend to I, I get geekier, I get nerdier, I I'm, I get wrapped up in the subject in a way I don't yeah. with a lot of other subjects. Which hey, I you know. Uh, can't apologize for that for being excited um so that's on that and yeah so i had the great pleasure um this is one of the interviews i'm most proud of uh, mm-hmm. and most excited to have done uh was with the great jim lampley so for anyone that doesn't know jim lampley called boxing for hbo boxing for something like 30 years called the uh tyson douglas fight called the uh, Gotti ward fight which we talk about all the fights um I, I could I could go on, but it would take it might actually take five hours. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you might you might get your five hour long podcast episode after all. And uh, and and yeah, and he'd also covered a great deal of Olympic events, which we got into in a little bit of detail. Here we go as the game is underway. The Soviet Union in red and the United States in white. The Americans doing that well thus far against the Soviets. He was there in that infamous day in Lake Placid, 1980. 1980, yeah. The, yep. uh, very important. I mean, you, you think about the Cold War and um, uh, also we were a little bit on the ropes. Um, you know, Afghanistan, had <laughs> just happened. And um, this Olympic moment in Lake Placid where there's a surprise win. Fantastic. Yeah, the infamous miracle on ice. Um, I'd love for you to tell our listeners um, what you've called your favorite Olympic memory uh, having to do with your experience at Lake Placid, 1980. So, um my job at Lake Placid in 1980, and uh, you may recall that that was a game where global politics and Olympic politics largely overshadowed uh, what was happening in the competition. Because the, the huge question overhanging those games was, would the United States choose to uh, boycott the Moscow Olympics later that summer? Uh, because of the presence of Soviet tanks in, ironically, Afghanistan. Uh, <laughs> they made that mistake before yes. we made that mistake. Uh, <laughs> and Carter administration was looking for vehicles to try to globally embarrass the Soviets and get them to pull out of uh, Afghanistan. And my, my original assignment at Lake Placid was bobsled and luge. Uh, but a very brilliant and skillful producer named Terry O'Neill went to Arledge, uh, and said, Hey, we're wasting Jim if we have him covering bobsleds at Luch. Jim should be your news and sports reporter, both for all of the organizational snafus and difficulties that the games are going to face. And, and they wound up with hundreds, if not thousands of people who had bought tickets and were entitled to go to the events standing and waiting in parking lots for uh, buses that never showed up, freezing. It said it was a horribly run Olympics with all sorts of organizational snafus. That was my beat. Um, the global politics thing with International Olympic Committee meetings and uh, Hotting Carter, who was then an assistant secretary of state, shuttling back and forth from uh, Washington to Lake Placid to talk to those people. That was one of my assignments. Um, and on the Friday of the second week, while the United States was playing 
the Soviet Union, in a 5 o'clock game, um, both ABC and the United States Olympic Committee had gone to the IOC to try to move the game to prime time. Look at this. It's in, in effect a stepping stone to the gold medal. It's the United States versus Soviet Union. You're crazy not to have it in prime time. And the Soviets said, schedule has always said that the game is at 5 p.m. We'll be there to play at 5 p.m. If you don't, you're going to default. Uh, and so the, the game was taking place at 5. And at 5 p.m., I was in a tape room with a uh, producer and a tape editor putting together a compendium of all of the reports I had done during the preceding 12, 13 days, and that was going to air on the closing ceremony show on Sunday. And we had at the top left of our edit bay a tiny monitor on which we were watching the United States versus Soviet Union in hockey. And we paused and watched at the end of the first period, in the last 30 seconds of the first period, when a puck got loose in the Soviet end, and a kid named Mark Johnson, tiny wing who was for two weeks the hottest goal scorer in the world, chased that puck and poked it under Vladislav Tretiak's glove to tie the score at 2-2. Two to two. Now, Arledge was always known for his so-called golden gut. The ability to foresee in advance that something significant or major was going to happen and how it should be covered. And about 15 seconds after Johnson scored the goal to make it 2-2, the red phone in our edit bay rang. Now, now every facility at ABC Sports in those days, whether it was a truck or an edit bay or an office, wherever it was, there was a red phone. The red phone was the Arledge phone. The only person who could possibly ring you on a red phone line was Ren Arledge. So the red phone is ringing now, 15 seconds after the gold, it makes it 2-2. And the producer and the editor and I all look at each other, and both of them say, all yours. You're the senior person. Uh, and and I say, okay, I guess so. And I pick up the red phone. Hello. Rune says, is Jim Lampley there? I said, yes, this is, Rune, this is Jim Rune. What's up? He said, what are you doing? And I told him what I was doing and the reason why. He said, drop that. Go over to the hockey arena. I need you to get in. Uh, I have a wild hunch that something amazing is going to happen in this game. If that turns out to be the case, we're going to need to get an interview, a significant interview, and I'm trusting you to figure that out. The last thing I said to him was, um, Rune, Oh, he said, you're on, you're on most important asset now. Wow. The last thing I said was, Rune, I don't have the credential to get into the hockey. And in those days, we're eight years removed from Munich. If yeah. you don't have the right credential for an event, there, there's very little chance you're going to get in. Right. And I said, Rune, I don't have the right credential to get into hockey, thinking he would send me somebody or something. He says, you'll get in. And hangs up the phone. So, uh, I, Walk 500 yards, maybe, from the edit facility and TV broadcast center to the high school arena where the hockey is taking place. I get to the door of the hockey arena, and the first person I run into is the venue manager, who's the high school hockey coach in charge of that arena. And by sheer coincidence, uh, because my agent was a hockey agent named Dark Kaminsky, I had met that guy two or three days before. Hmm. Explain my situation to him. He said, I'll let you know. 
So now I go in, have to find a place to watch the game. Uh, and I wind up standing on a camera platform behind the two main coverage cameras. Uh, and I have to be totally still so that I'm not causing their cameras to shake and therefore their shot to wiggle, uh, while they're covering the game. And I noticed that there's one other guy on that platform who doesn't belong there. And he's wearing a green navy peacoat and he's got long kind of greasy hair. Takes me a while to figure it out. But eventually I realized this is the famous folk singer Harry Chapin who had done a concert uh, at the Olympic Village the night before. And now we are companions watching the hockey game. Second period uh, goes by. Soviets score a goal. And then Buzzy Schneider, uh, I believe, scores a slap shot from uh, the uh, the blue line. And now we go into the third period and it's three to three. And uh, as we are finishing the second period, um, I turn and kind of hug Chapin. We haven't even spoken to each other yet, but we have a kind of a hug. Both cameramen turn around and say, don't shake the cameras. Okay, <laughs> all right. So now we both go off, talk to somebody, do something during the period gap, and come back as the third period begins. And, of course, you know what happens in the third period. U.S. team is depending a little bit for anybody who doesn't know. Go to YouTube. Uh, it's one of the most momentous and spectacularly inexplicable and exciting things ever to happen in American sports. Eleven seconds. You've got ten seconds. The countdown going on right now. And when that en- enormous celebration is ebbing, the whole thing is over. I realize, oh my God, the players are now headed into the dressing room, and I have to somehow find somebody to interview because Arledge told me that if this happens, I'm going to be closing the show with uh, an interview tonight. They booked time at the end to uh, to make that possible. So I go down. I get into a hallway outside the uh, dressing room, and now I begin to watch the American players come out one on one after another from the dressing room. And it's chaos. There are cameras. There are reporters. And I'm on one side, and they are exiting and going out the door toward the other side. And I recognize some of them. Some of them I don't. And I'm just yelling, hey, 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 you know, you know, hey, hey, Ken Morrow, hey, uh, you know, Jimmy Craig, et cetera. And I'm yelling and yelling, and nobody hears me because of the chaos. And the last player out was a Ruzioni. We had the same agent. I had met him a few days ago. And when I, the same day that I had met the high school hockey coach. And this time when I yelled, Mike, 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 he recognizes my voice. So Mike turns around and comes over to me. And I said, Mike, oh my God, you know, I said, he's exciting as hell, right? You know, congratulations. I said, Mike, what are you doing? I, I need to interview you. I have to have an interview. He said, no, I can't do that. I'm going to dinner with Jimmy Craig and his dad at such and such a restaurant. I said, guess who's paying for dinner? <laughs> uh, and so I managed to go with them. And then at the end of the evening, take them both out of the restaurant, go stand on the street uh, in front of the restaurant to do uh, that interview. And uh, about 15 seconds before McKay throws it to me, Mike looks at me and says, Jim, look around behind you. And there are 5,000 people on the street behind us. 
because they see the camera, they see Jimmy and Mike, da 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 da. And, uh, and I look back and I say, pretty wild. And Mike says, if we had stood here last night, all three of us, if we had stood in this position last night, and I said, nobody would have recognized. He said, exactly. Nobody would have paid a bit of attention. And, and there we were. Um, and over the years since that time, I have run into Jimmy and Mike many, many times at Olympic gatherings and, you know, post-Olympic uh, events and stuff of that nature. And every time, every time I run into Mike, and I hope I do again, but I mm. don't know, uh, he, um, uh, I say to him, I say to Mike, it's now a scripted moment. I say, Mike, you know, because of the miracle of videotape, you are now the most prolific scorer in the history of hockey. Uh, and he <laughs> always says to me, Lamps keeps going in, doesn't it? <laughs> and that's it. It does keep going in every time. And to anybody who says that wasn't a miracle, I can give you the long story. That was a miracle. That couldn't happen, but it did. It keeps going in. Love it. Keeps Love it. In. It's incredible. <laughs> he's he's an incredible storyteller. And what was so funny to me, uh, Bruce, was I remember before I hit record on that that interview, you know, I, I said we're going to track through this and some of the fights and the Olympic memory and so forth. He goes, I hope I can remember them. Uh, cut to <laughs> 10 minutes later, he's telling me what 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 damn color the coat was of the guy next to him, <laughs> you know, awesome. like, I think, I think you're just fine, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Boxing creates a lot of stories. I mean, it's just yeah. the nature of it. You know, you can watch, you can watch um, 25 baseball games with nothing. And, you know, one boxing match will have incredible uh, stories behind it. And I always find if you don't know the stories, then you're just watching some people beat each other up, but that's not that. Uh, Sports drama. It, yeah, the sports drama is needed almost in that sport, especially to go back and watch the vintage games, you know. After your interview, I was just watching uh, Leonard Hearns again. Ah. Um, just, uh, and, uh, you know, incredible, incredible fight. Yeah, um, incredible. That, that, that's one of my favorite fights. Uh, I could go I could go on. Believe me, I will. <laughs> it's, it's all three Rocky movies in one. Well, what did he pull from? He pulled from. Well, actually, I would have been too late for. But yeah, he he uh, um, it's it's um, a, a lot of those Rocky movies all come from various boxing stories and stories that probably happened before and, and things like that. Um, well, yeah, well, go just, ahead. Yeah, I was going to say just as an aside. um couldn't be less relevant, but uh, the the original Rocky story is based on Chuck Wepner, who uh, is a was a fighter. I mean, do you do you buy it? Do you buy it? Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I do. Uh, I, Chuck Wepner certainly made a career. Uh, oh, I know now. that part. Yeah, I know that. And I know <laughs> Stallone did agree. I always thought composite. Yeah. I always said composite, but then again, that's what the people said about Deep Throat, and we turned out being wrong that it was a composite <laughs> of people. Uh, but uh, enter Mr. Felt. Yeah, yeah enter Mr. <laughs> Felt. We're talking to Josh Cohen, whose program is Eyewitness History. Sign up to the podcast. Do it right now. You get your phone. Sign up right now. Um, when I first started doing podcasting, it was you know desktop computer, so it was a little more complicated. But now you can just pop on your phone and subscribe to his program. It's on the Parthenon Network. A lot of other good shows. Scott ranks on there with Unplugged History. Um, we like that a lot. 
it is all of this kind of stuff that we're talking about today. It's real interviews of people in history who were part of history or know a lot about it that they can recreate it. I had the great honor and privilege of interviewing a Jonestown survivor, if you can imagine, as as you know. Um, there weren't many. I mean, there, there are some. There were not but many. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, so this this gentleman, his name is Eugene Smith. Uh, oh, it just uh, set it up. We're talking about the cult because there are some younger listeners that may not be as prominent, but this was a cult in, um, say, 78, uh, and uh, they transported themselves from San Francisco to Guyana, kind of the spell of this guy, Jones, and uh, we'll leave it at that. So I, I interviewed a gentleman named Eugene Smith, uh, who on the day you mentioned tragically lost his wife and, and kid that day at Jonestown. Um, and, uh, it's a, uh, he had an incredible story. He's written a book about it. Um, and here I asked him what he thinks the biggest widespread, the, the most widespread misconception about Jonestown is. What would you say is the biggest, the most widespread misconception about Jonestown? That everybody, that, that everybody died willingly. It's been disproven, but it's never been. Uh, prophesized in a way that it should be. Sure. Uh, because they, you know, people were injected in, in all sorts, in all sorts of parts of their body, you know, which meant that they were, they were running or fleeing. Right. Um, not everybody was in the pavilion. Even when they did the, even when they arranged the bodies after the fact, they were outside the pavilion. Um, even in some of the last recordings, of, oh hell no, we no, that's not what we're like. We fight, we fight. Um, it was not, it was not a hundred percent agreed upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the biggest misconception is that everybody did this willingly, and that and that those that survived. Either they were special, special in the sense that, you know, they had privileges others didn't, or they were special in the sense that um, they were meant to carry on the message, mm. um, which is all, it's like, no way. <laughs> um, and it took, it took years in the sense that uh, when we first came back, the first thing you did was shut your mouth. You didn't say nothing to nobody about anything. And if you could, if you weren't, if you, if your picture wasn't blasted all over the news, you try to keep it secretive as you can. Um, the difference is, and I keep going back to this, depending on when you came in, dictated how you reacted when you came back. You know, from, from a, from a child to a teenager to an adult, your world was gone because you had nothing before that. If you came in as an adult, you had a life prior. You searched for that, the life prior. If you came in as a senior, which meant that like in 1978, you might have been born in 1900. Or you might have been born in the 1800s. Um, you had nothing to come back to because you're not going to be respected to the same extent because you should have known better. The other thing is, is that you're a senior citizen and that uh, you're not going to be honored. You're going to get put in a rest home, convalescent home, 
Or you might even be jet, which are being what they consider crazy. So, so depend, like I said, so when you join, how you join dictated how you, how you responded after that was gone. If you had any life before, you tried to return to that. Uh, if you didn't have any life before, you tried to create a new life without these people. We were monitored for 10 years after the fact. Our files were still open. So it's like, it wasn't, it wasn't like you just had like, okay, well, you're free now. No, right. no, you're not. No, you're not. That was very incredible to hear him say it. Cause, uh, another thing that we delve into in a bit more detail, he kind of gleaned at it there was that there was a, a sort of ostracization that took place to, to the survivors of Jonestown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's something that, that isn't really talked about that much that the, probably the, the way we think about it is, well, they were the victims, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were seen to and they got, you know, grief counseling and so on and so forth. And, th- and there was a good bit of that, but there was also quite a stigma. He, he told me there was, th- there were aspects of, you know, how could you not see this coming? Mm-hmm. What did you do to prevent it? What could you have done to prevent it? Now, at the time, just for for him, Eugene was 250 miles away from from Jonestown proper at the time. Um, the name of the town he was at just for the moment escapes me. Um, Is but it maybe there, there the was, capital of Georgetown, or I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that sounds right. They were in uh, it, which shows you they were in, a, and that's maybe something that's not clear to people. They were in a really remote part of the jungle that even the Guianans hadn't necessarily settled very well right no that, that that's exactly right i mean i i'm sure you know jim jones you know specifically designed it to mm. to have as much control as possible and uh, tragically horrible to say it, it he was successful so yeah it was a it was a real honor to to speak with him and he emailed me afterwards and said that i did a great job with it which meant a lot to me actually because i, yeah. I wanted to make sure that i touched the touch the topic in the right way you know, I mean, mm-hmm. again, he lost his wife and kid over this. And, yeah. uh, you know, so I, w- I wanted to make sure that I did right by him, if nobody else. And he said that I did. So that 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 pleased me very much. I mean, big takeaways from that one. We've discussed it. But it's some part of summary is a yeah, everyone talked about it as a giant suicide. Uh, and no, it's a murder suicide. And mm-hmm. it was not just drinking the Kool-Aid. It was running away from the syringe and running away from the Jonestown self-established military guys um it yeah it was um it was and they surely would have got to him if they were able to mm-hmm. um and it was um also the idea of how a cult starts like that like this isn't exactly the way they were in san francisco in san no. francisco that church you see connections sometimes there are some particularly right-wing commentators even now exploiting some of those connections that happened back when between say uh because Pelosi, uh, not Pelosi, a Feinstein was uh, live in politics at that point. Actually, Pelosi would have been beginning her career a little bit, um, but uh, Feinstein was live at that point in uh, in California politics. That church was very important in San Francisco. I mean, as a it's a it's a city of abandoned people in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and a lot of people that have left their families drifted to San Francisco. Uh, and this church picked up on that, and and for a while, for some people, it seemed good. But he did. He describes. You really got to listen to Josh's podcast to get the interview. He describes that process of how a cult affects you slowly but surely. The old yep. frog and boiled water type metaphor, and the um, 
that idea of drinking the Kool-Aid has just been harmful as a metaphor. And he discusses that a bit um, for for people. So I'm really glad you, you know, I learned something from almost every uh, one of your shows I've listened to. I learned something new. That's kind Um, of you. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, so great one. Thank you. Did did you, I I really appreciate that. Did you happen to listen to it? You can find it on YouTube. Um, The last few minutes of Jonestown where everything's being administered is actually available. You can hear audio. Um, If you have a stomach for it, uh, I, I, it's one of the most horrifying things you'll ever hear in your life. You hear babies crying and you hear people pleading and begging. And now whenever you know, uh, last time I heard it, all I thought is, my God, you know, somewhere somewhere in there, Eugene Smith's wife <laughs> and kid is. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it's it's uh, they're victims and. Um, it's not the only cult. It wouldn't be the only cult. There was a cult that operated right in the middle of Upper West Side Manhattan, the Sullivan Institute. And <clears> while. They never got to the Kool-Aid stage. I would argue that some of the sexual abuse in that cult, um, especially now that we have more focus on mental illness and and the effects of some of these things, reached a horrifying, probably horrifying level in their um, The whole goal of the Sullivan Institute was your parents are your problem. It's probably true for a lot of people. I get that. <laughs> people that arrive in New York or San Francisco, similar thing. And um, there was no Sullivan. A guy that actually led it had a different name. He was one man control. Same thing. Everybody looked to him to make the decision. Oh, what could possibly go wrong? And it's like it turns out when you remove the parents, and they so if anyone had children, they would remove that child from the family within the cult and give it to wow. someone else. And wow. And of course, how it broke apart. Thank God is that there were some some of these paternity suits where members started. And again, I bring that up because that didn't happen in a jungle. That didn't happen in a little small town in Kansas. That happened in a very nice neighborhood within New York City. And oh, by the way, when they had problems with the neighbors, things got violent. Uh, There were uh, numerous incidents there. It shows you that these cults can happen. And if you listen to that interview with him, he talks about that process pretty well, how a relatively normal uh, person can start to slowly slide. And each little thing you're saying, okay, this isn't too bad. I guess I can handle this. And I saw the same thing in reading in the New Yorker article about the Sullivan Institute, which I had heard about a bit at the time as well. We had a teacher in our high school that was a member. Um, and they would, you know, so yeah, these things exist. It's, 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 um, and it's good to know about. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. It's incredible. What do you think? What do you think? You got, uh, you got another one queued up or we got as time a ma- or as a matter of fact, I do. Oh, yeah. We have time. I, I have, uh, if it's amenable to you, I, I have four more at the, at, in the chamber. <laughs> well, you may have heard in my my latest episode. I told the listeners how I lost my. This is this has become like history, Bruce Carlson history. We don't need that, but I just you know <laughs> I don't have a full time job at the current time because yeah. um I uh, company laid me off after seventeen years, but uh, um and that is not the story. Uh, but it does give me time, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll try it. We'll try it. What do we got next? Well, um, so that was that was serious history, obviously. Um, so I like to talk about Fleetwood Mac. I interviewed, as you know, uh, Bruce Ken Calais. 
Ken Calais is a very well-known record producer. Um, if the last name Calais sounds familiar, Colby Calais, who did uh, a lot of the music for, was it Moana? Um, uh, Coco, Coco it was, uh, is his daughter. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, yeah, so he engineered the Fleetwood Mac al- albums, Rumors, Tusk, Mirage, the Chainbox set, all the, all the famous ones. Um, and when Rumors came out, this is the one that has uh, Don't Stop, one of my personal favorite songs mm-hmm. of Fleetwood Mac. I love that yep. album. Love the whole I know. album. Oh, it's a classic, absolute classic. And he won an Emmy, uh, uh, excuse me, a Grammy for it, rather. And I asked him, you know, what was that like? And he goes through a little bit of of some of the engineering of the album itself, how it sold, and then what the experience of uh, winning a Grammy was like. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know, can you take me through the experience of winning uh, a Grammy? And what that was like. It's not often I get to speak with a, a Grammy winner. Well, that's, I mean, you know, it was, it was such a, a weird year. And, and once we released the record, uh, I guess it was released three months, two months after we finished it. And we finished in, we started in January 75 and we ended in January 77. Or seventy six. No, we worked all through seventy six. Yeah, January seventy seven. We finished mixing, but and and I would believe it was the the rumors came out three days ago, forty five years ago, on Jan- February fourth, seventy seven, and and it was it was an immediate hit. It was you know it's it when Fleetwood Mac decided and and told me that I was. Uh, going to be the, the labeled a producer for the record, which means, which means you, if the record sells something, you might make, you, you gets a few cents here and there. But so I thought, well, yeah, right. You know, none of my other records have sold anything, you know, and I got nothing. So little did I know that I won the lotto on that, but it was funny. So, and after the record was released, 
I remember I was walking out of the camera store. I finally had some free time to get my camera fixed. And I got into the car and KLOS was, was playing, was going to play the Rumors album in its entirety. They said, the DJ, I just turned the key on. My dog was in the car and, and he says, now I'm going to play this album. It's amazing. It sounds great. Turn it up and I want you to enjoy the whole thing. And, and all of a sudden he played my album on the, on the radio. It's like that I had played so many times and I'm sitting there by myself, no cell phone. I'm going to, Hey, come here. Ah, you know, it's amazing. And so that was just really a thrill. Uh, being a part of that and, and, um, so, so, so that was that kind of excitement. So when I went to the Grammys and I got the Grammy award, I was sitting with the whole band and we, we had, we had got heard all these accolades for, well, it was a year later. So we had heard a lot of them. Um, but, but when they called Fleetwood Mac as the producers of the year, um, we were also nominated for Best Engineered Album. Mm-hmm. Didn't win that. Steely Dan got it. But anyway, so we had gotten up, Fleetwood Mac had gotten up a bunch of times for Album of the Year and different things that we won. And so when it was the, the finally, when it came to the producer of the year, they, we all stood up and, and then Fleetwood Mac sat down. It was like a joke. Let's, let's put Ben and Richard walk up to this to the podium by ourselves. <laughs> we walk up to the podium, you know, figuring the band's right there and look around. There's no band. And I look, they're just laughing. They're just cracking up, you know. Pick up the award for us. Anyway, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, he was a he was a very nice guy. It was cool speaking with him. Um, and yeah, and then I, I remember actually later that day, I, I interviewed him at maybe like 11 a.m. my time. So right after the interview was done, about an hour, uh, I went for a run, my lunch break, and I, I was listening to Don't Stop <laughs> <laughs> in the headphones. I'm like, and yeah, that, that's that's a pretty surreal thing. I, I, I get that experience often. It's like when I'm watching HBO Boxing and I see, you know, hear Jim Lampley's voice. I'm like, oh, man, I, I freaking talked with that guy, <laughs> you know. Well, that's going to happen more uh, and more and to any, you. That's going to happen more and yeah. more. You'll certainly get another Grammy. That Grammy uh, <laughs> on the, you may have already. Um, he it, uh, it is an album that should be listened to in its totality, in my opinion, just like he did. It, when you hear the songs together, they create a magic that doesn't exist. The uh, yeah. I had to look it up. The album that won Best Engineering that year was Steely Den Asia, which is mm. another one. So if you're going to lose to somebody, hey. You know that's, what? that's another goodie. So uh that again, and you listen to it in all of its all of its together and all the songs. Because, you know, but with going back to rumors, what I have found, and I used to listen to it on cassette tape and a walkman like commuting into the city all the time. When you reach the point of don't stop, it's cathartic because so much angst and trauma happens in the other songs as they're all yeah. breaking up and getting back together and finding new people and all this stuff. Uh- we got we got these a lot of the serious stuff out of the way, so I suppose you know. we did we did actually uh, yeah. So tell you what, this next one, as you know, I interviewed um, the DEA agents that took down Pablo Escobar. Got it. Yep. Yeah. So for our listeners, uh, this is a uh, Javier Pina and Steve Murphy. This is my my first 
double interview where I interviewed, you know, two people at the same time, which is always a personal goal of mine. So I was able to achieve that. Um, any listeners that are familiar with the, with the Netflix show Narcos, uh, is based on these agents and what they did and, and how they, they took down the narco terrorist Pablo Escobar. And, uh, and here we talk about the Robin Hood myth with Pablo Escobar and Steve Murphy, one of the agents, um, the one that you told me sounds like Bill Clinton, which now I can't unhear, <laughs> um, t- basically dispels that, that he does. That he myth. definitely does. <laughs> yeah. It's not Bill Clinton, folks. It's not Bill Clinton. We promise. One thing that fascinates me about the whole Pablo Escobar, um, saga is how uh, loved he was by the Colombian people. Uh, and this won't be a surprise to either of you, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, successfully ran for Congress. So he was seen as so, sort of like a Robin Hood. Uh, not completely unfairly. He gave money to the poor and so forth. Um, but I am curious, would it be fair to say that this, uh, Avianca bombing was so, something like a turning point in the general perception of him? Now, the real turning point was when he killed Galan the leading presidential candidate. Mm. But um, I'm glad you brought that up about the, this Robin Hood myth, because we like to address that. Great. Um, he, and like you said, he did do some good things. He gave money to the poor. He built clinics. He built housing, free housing for people who were living on the edge of the trash dump. He gave away food. He built uh, soccer fields, you know, and I, <laughs> I mean, he did really good things. And, and if it had stopped at that, well, that would be a magnanimous thing to do. However, as he's battling the government, his Sicarios, and, you know, at one point had as many as 500 Sicarios protecting him, as if Sicarios are being killed, when he needed to recruit new people, where do you think he went? He went mm-hmm. right back into those communas where he had given these people what they have. They think he walks on water. Like Javier said, they, you know, he loved them. They loved him. <laughs> they made no bones about it. They were willing to kill for Pablo. They were willing to die for Pablo. And so he might, he might meet these these young people and say, you know, after after all the niceties and pleasantries and all that, he'd say, listen, my friends, Pablo needs, I don't know, 40 people who are willing to come and fight for me, fight to do the right thing. You know, and he'd give them his little public spiel. And the sad thing is a couple hundred kids might step up. And so these are the new Sicarios. And these kids are in range, range in an age from maybe 14 to 22, 23 years old. It's like Javier told you, the, the, the one kid that he was in on the arrest where the guy, you know, opened up and told Javier about his life. He said he doesn't expect to live older than that. He failed, he just feels that he'll be dead by then. So it, it just, what we say that rather than him being a Robin Hood, he was a master manipulator. Yes. He manipulated those people to get what he wanted where he gave them something nice, but there's always a payback, you know. The payback, though, is you're willing to give your life to die for this guy. I'm trying to clean up my language there, sorry. <laughs> no, not a problem. Perhaps, perhaps more of a Pied Piper than a Robin Hood. Will that do? <laughs> um, I, I can think of other terms, but I won't say them. In the <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so, um, not to mention the fact that he's also blowing apart your government, which you know, as as corrupt as some politicians might be, and that was always, you're talking about. I mean, there was a there was a, a moment where they were blowing away at the Supreme Court building and whoever they could reach, presidential candidates. I mean, Colombia just couldn't have a functioning government, which is the the first sin. And then, yeah, you give away a few ballparks. And I hate to say it, American even documentaries they're subject to this kind of Hollywood bias because some of the same producers are 
Hollywood producer. Absolutely. Um, so that's up for, I always think it's podcasting and us to do some of the, the work. We got the cleanup crew. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. Uh, I would laugh if that wasn't. Com- that would be funny if it wasn't completely true. <laughs> the next clip I'm really excited to share uh, mm-hmm. with our listeners, Bruce. So I I had the great pleasure of interviewing Spike Edney. So Spike is the keyboardist for Queen, <laughs> which was amazing. He's been their keyboardist um, just before they started touring the Works album, which I think was 1982. I might might be wrong about that, um, but I think so. And he was on stage with them playing playing as part of Queen uh, during Live Aid. You know, what's now known as the most uh, as pretty widely considered the, the best rock and roll performance in the history of music. Um, that doesn't really run the risk of being much an exag- of an exaggeration, I don't think. So no, I hate to. So I just looked it up. Eighty four. Eighty four. Excuse me. Not bad for going Close. off my brain. You're in there. You're in there. Yeah. <laughs> They're playing at Live Aid, and then um, I'll play that clip if that works. Talk to me a little bit about the energy inside Wembley at the time while you're on stage. Can you recall what you were feeling? Um, it was very exciting um, because uh, once we played uh, Radio Gaga with the hand clap, I think Gaga was the second tune. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> if I was nervous, I wasn't too nervous because I kind of you know, had faith that we would go over okay because we were match fit. Uh, and had been touring and knew that what the audience response would be to certain uh, pieces of music. Um, and of course, starting off with Bo Rap, that got everybody's attention and they all went crazy. But then going into Gaga, uh, my only concern was that I have to uh, control the synthesizer part and uh, that goes all the way through it. And uh, I have to play that. And um, I was just concerned that nothing went wrong with that because uh, earlier in the tour, I'd had some issues mm. with the uh, keyboard and it had, uh, had been a problem. And my hand slipped on one of the controls and <laughs> created chaos. It was all, it was all stupidity and an operator error. It wasn't the keyboard itself. It was my uh, my handling of it that was wrong. But, um, but that had been uh, quite a while before and I would got my routine down and learned what to do and what not to do in order to keep it in pristine readiness. And uh, so when we got to the Gaga and I pressed the key that starts off that uh, introduction, my heart was in my mouth, to tell you the truth, because if it hadn't worked, then, then uh, well, I just don't know. That the alternative keep, keep me awake at night. Um, Anyway, it worked perfectly, and they all clapped and joined in, and then I thought, okay, we're good um, to get that kind of reaction on the second song, because we get, I knew that we had We Were Rocky and We Are The Champions to come, so it was a done deal. Fish in a barrel after that. <laughs> and you know what? That's that's history, right? And that that's what's so cool about talking with the eyewitnesses that were there. Um, you know, all we're talking about drama all this stuff setting it up makes that so much more exciting and so much more um i guess human you know oh yeah uh absolutely that's what we're trying to do and i think anyone who reads a lot of history um from whatever time period it is uh is seeking that out there the more you're doing it a level one history is what dates you gotta know your dates you gotta know where you are you know what happened first in a lot of cases, but um, what influenced what? And then it's getting to like, what is the reality behind what happened? And you can only really get that from eyewitnesses account. Somewhere on my shelf, I have a whole 
um, book of several books of American stories of eyewitnesses accounts from all parts of uh, history. And I use that quite a bit. And I find it real interesting to hear from somebody from from a certain time period about about events. Absolutely. Wonderful. I um, if I may, Bruce, I have Mm -hmm. one last clip that I'll inflict on our listeners. Um, No, no, no. (laughs) You got a big bag. We're happy that you're sharing some of the bag with us. Oh, it's that's my pleasure. I appreciate you asking me to to do it. I'm happy to. I uh, so I last year I interviewed um, a a really well known not not quite a Joe Rogan but a not unknown <laughs> podcaster named Jordan Harbinger, who mm-hmm. of course heads up the Jordan Harbinger show, which I'm 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 sure will be known to some of our mutual audience. Um, and in addition to his podcast and his interviews and so forth, he he also is a tour guide. And has led tours um, within North Korea. Has um, wow. so he has had yeah numerous tours within within the the Hermit Kingdom, so to speak. Um, and I was chomping at the bit to speak with him about this because North Korea is such a mystery to the whole planet, really. When when you think about it, it's and it's incredible. And you you perhaps have seen the the photo of uh, North and South Korea at night. Um, uh, you'll see South Korea completely lit up. It's a very pluralist, you know, democratic, you know, country with a, a vibrant nightlife and so forth. And North Korea completely dark. Uh, a few lights on, I think, in the capital. I think, but more or less dark. It's it's a haunting photo. And Jordan and I talk about this as well. But um, here there was a specific instance uh, where he put an ashtray on a magazine that had the picture of the dear leader on it. Um, so I set, I set this up during the interview and then he, he, he runs with it. I'm, I'm fighting the urge. I, I really want to be the one interviewer in history that doesn't mention George Orwell or 1984. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but it's, it's extraordinary to think about the totalitarian regime and how it really is made manifest. Uh, so, you know, to that point, obviously so much of the DPRK is centered around a cult of personality, right? Mm-hmm. We have the dear leader, the great leader, et cetera. Um, I would imagine you'd see his face everywhere. You've already alluded to it with the mural. Um, and I know you had an interesting experience uh, with a magazine that bore, I think it was Kim Jong-il's face and an ashtray when you uh, yeah. went to put the magazine cover on it. Yeah, which maybe you could run through Lots that. Lots of little totalitarian cult of personality, crazy stuff like this has happened in North Korea and to me over the years. So I took one of the magazines from the airplane, no problem. They're also in the hotel, whatever. And it had Kim Jong-il's face on it. He was the son of the original founder of North Korea, Kim Il-sung. So in, in most of the magazines do. And I wanted more space on my desk. So I put it on a table. Uh, I took the ashtray off the desk, put that on the table. I had some coins. I put those in the ashtray. Um, they were like, you know, Chinese money or whatever. I put some other, I put a bag on top of that. And these were all on top of the magazine. I thought nothing of it. It was like an issue of Time magazine that you'd already read. Who cares? Right. And I also thought maybe I'll take these home. And so I'll keep them in good condition by putting stuff on them that isn't going to damage them, like an ashtray with coins in it in a bag. Well, when I came back to my room, the magazine was gone. And the cleaning staff had come and turned the bed down and all that other stuff. But everything else had been laid on the table where I left it. And I was like, where is the magazine? And the next day, I took more magazines because I wanted them. I found them in the hotel or wherever the, wherever we got them. I can't quite remember. Sure. I took them, and I took a stack of two or three, and I did the same thing. I put them on the table, but then I put the ashtray back on it because I don't want to take up all the dang real estate in my room. 
And then when I came back the next day, the magazine were, were also gone. And I was like, what the hell? So then I thought, oh, I wonder if it's because I put something on top of the magazine. So I got another copy of one of the magazines, because now I'm experimenting. And I put it on my desk, and I didn't put anything on it or around it. And I put an, I, I had another one from my bag, which I put on the table with not, I did not put the ashtray on top of it. I did not put the bag on top of it. And when I came back to my room, they were both there. So I th- that was sort of all I needed to know. They found it offensive that I had put an ashtray on top of their leader's photo, and they had decided that I wasn't allowed to keep the magazine. And I've had similar things like this happen. I was writing something on the airplane. The time I got seated next to a North Korean in the back of the airplane, I needed a pen. He lent me a pen. I started writing on something, but I had folded the newspaper shut, and I started writing on the paper that I had, on top of the newspaper, and he said, no, 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 you cannot write, you cannot use the newspaper as a writing surface, even if you're not writing on it, because it will, and he's telling me in Korean, I did not understand what hell he was doing, but basically, he didn't want the pen pressure to damage, it was like a re-entry form for China, you know, I'm not writing a diary entry, it was nothing objectionable to the content that I was writing, he didn't want me to write on the surface that might then dent the photo and make it not reflect all glossy, and because it had Kim Jong Un's face on it, wow. and I was like, "Geez, man, you guys are ridiculous." They treat they treat every photo of this guy like it's the Shroud of Turin or something. I mean, it's just completely ridiculous. <laughs> there we have. I it. mean, I- I- there you have it. That's the end result of a, a, a cult that's a, a, an entire country. You know, that's, yeah, that's the end result there, and it's those are little things that that tell you what you need to know. You know, I also noticed that. He, Jordan there, engages in a kind of a stimulus response or, or a, you know, an, an approach to the black box that if you don't know, we don't know what North Korea is unless we do something, see right. what they react, and then they, they do this, and then you see, that's it, that's all you have. And for a long time, that's a great way to look at what China was mm-hmm. between, um, say, uh, 1950 and um and i'm gonna say uh i'm not even gonna say nixon because it didn't magically open up i'll probably go to like 79 opening of diplomatic relations even or even mid 80s maybe reagan's visit when trade opened so they didn't have this window was very similar to what they're going to do we have no idea we have no idea what's going on in the country can't get in Uh, anything else that you'd like to say about the like interviews you did or anything? Gosh, I mean, yeah. So the, the podcast once again is called uh, Eyewitness History. It's uh, can be found wherever fine podcasts can be downloaded, <laughs> including, of course, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And we have our own website uh, under the Parthenon Podcast Network called ParthenonPodcast.com. And uh, I think I'll I, I think I will throw my little uh, my little plug out for the, for the other shows uh, which you already gleaned at Bruce. Um, it's headed up by Dr. Scott Rank, who you know, um, and his podcast History Unplugged. Uh, there's also Steve Guerra, and he has two podcasts. One is called Organized Crime and Punishment, which is newer, and the other is called History of the Papacy. 
Um, following that, we have James Early, who has a great podcast called Key Battle. Excuse me, called Key Battles of American History. He's great. Uh, he's great. Yeah, he's he's great. He's great. And then uh, Richard Lim, who has a, a podcast called This American President, where he delves into uh, the the lives of presidents, and um, that's that's a wonderful podcast. It's a top um, podcast. Very popular. Yeah. A very popular with my history can beat up your politics listeners. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And he's been on C-SPAN, which I know you have as well. So you guys have that in common. Um, and we just added a couple shows. Uh, we have an, uh, another host named Mark Vinette, who's a great guy, very smart. He's an author, historian, and he has two podcasts. One is called Historical Jesus with Mark Vinette, and then the other is History of North America with Mark Vinette. So, uh, uh, yeah, those are the great those stuff. are the shows. It's uh, it's great stuff. It's a pleasure to be. To be, you know, contributing the little that I do uh, for for the network. Um, as far as interviews uh, coming down the line, um, I have a uh, couple cool things coming up. I, I interviewed recently a legendary, I do say legendary, CIA officer uh, named Rick Prado, who was the first CIA agent to train the Contras in Nicaragua. Um, he also headed up the counterterrorism division in, C in the CIA right after 9-11. Um, that was very cool. Uh, I also, <clears throat> uh, just this, just this past Tuesday, uh, released an interview I did with Annie Mashan, who was formerly an agent with MI5 and she's, she's infamous in, in, in history for, um, whistleblowing basically, uh, a, a whole litany of crimes committed by the agency over the course of of however long period of time i released that one this past tuesday i'd love for our mutual audience to check that out and then also some some lighter stuff as well uh i interviewed i interviewed randall kleiser who directed greece very popular uh, movie so yeah it would be great yeah so uh, and i also interviewed um a very famous uh casting director named joel thurm who was actually the casting director for greece as well as Cheers and the Golden Girls and and uh, Silver Spoons, a whole bunch of shows. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's that's the that's the quick punch list of uh, things that I have coming up. Oh, and there's another interview with a, a 9/11 survivor that I'll, I'll be releasing this next week. So I'm excited for that as well. I'll throw out the plug that you have our um, mutual guest Paula Stone Tucker. A lot of good other stuff. Hey Josh, thanks so much for coming on the program. My pleasure, Bruce. I really appreciate you inviting me. And then maybe my one last thing is uh, to publicly thank you for putting me in touch with Paula Stone Tucker, because that interview wouldn't have happened without you connecting us. And that was that was a, a great interview. So I wanted to, to thank you publicly for doing that for me. Well, I'm not I'm not the pod father, but if I could be an <laughs> uncle here or there, you know, I'm always happy to help out where I can. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for the time, Bruce. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed speaking with you.